This is Sierra Tyson, ELA Specialist at Unbound Ed. This year, I've launched a project called The Education Nomad, where I travel across the country to meet with educators to learn more about the intersection of equity, curriculum, and education. You can learn more at Education Nomad on Twitter and The Education Nomad on Instagram. Today, I have the honor of having a conversation with Josh Parker. Josh Parker is a 2013 NEA Global Fellow and the 2012 Maryland Teacher of the Year. He serves the students and staff of Paul Lawrence Dunbar High School in Washington, D.C. as an instructional coach. He is a proud board member of the National Network of State Teachers of the Year. And to connect with Josh on Twitter, follow him at MDTOI2012. So we have Josh here. Welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be here with The Education Nomad. Yes, it's a pleasure to have you here. I've known you for about a year now, yes. and I was so lucky to be able to come into your sessions this week at Sanders Institute. So tell our listeners about your path to becoming an educator. So my path to becoming an educator almost didn't happen. And so when I was a child, my idol, if you will, was Kobe Bryant. I mean, outside of Michael Jordan, of course. And I was like, you know what? That's what I want to do. You know, black boy, I just want to play basketball. And so you actually have to be good. So <laughs> that didn't work sure. for me. Um, and so I said, if I, I don't play basketball, let me just go to school and talk about it, learn how to talk about sports. And so I went to school to be a sports broadcaster. My minor was English, but I, I always thought that I would be on ESPN doing that type of work. And it, it just, it's funny how things change. So when I got into sports production, I was really enjoying it for like two minutes. <laughs> then mm -hmm. after a while, it was the same story, just with different people. And it, there wasn't um, an interaction. I didn't feel like I was really contributing positively to the world. And so I said, while I wait for my next job, let me start substitute teaching. And then when I started substitute teaching, I started to understand that this was a job that I was waiting for. So I went back to school, got my education while teaching, and my path was that way. I guess you could say it started when I substitute taught, but the seeds of it were planted in 10th grade in Miss Dew, her class. She was my English teacher in high school, and she basically helped me to fall in love with the Harlem Renaissance and English. And that was a seed that was just watered. And then when I made that decision to substitute teach, I just made that move. You said a little bit about contributing to the world and watering those seeds. And that's yes. exactly what we do here at Standards Institute, right? Absolutely. So as Every a facilitator, day. can you describe some of the aha moments that you've witnessed teachers experience? I think some aha moments are that you don't have to divorce the standards from equity. The conversation can happen at the same time. Um, the aha moment is that it's opening up the box of what people can do again. I feel like sometimes in education, whether you're a first-year teacher or a 10-year teacher or whatever you sometimes the box of possibilities is closed. So this institute helps open that back up again. And you go back and say, OK, this is what I really wanted to get into the profession to do. Now, here are the tools to make it happen. And so Institute helps bring you with other people. You all really uh, learn all these principles and strategies to open back up the box of possibilities. And I think that's the best aha, is that 
I can do what I really wanted to do all along. Now I have the roadmap for it. And I can engage in these conversations with more confidence because my container has been built. So I think Institute really helps um, those that come enjoy that. So it's, it's an honor to facilitate. It's an honor to attend. And it's great to be with an organization that takes equity and standards seriously. Can you describe some of your aha moments and how you've brought that back to your district? So I think the idea of complex text is the biggest aha for me, that when you level the text, you level experiences. And so this idea of putting grade level text in front of kids, even if they are below grade level learners or English language learners, was a big aha for me. Another aha for me was just this idea that we don't have to turn off the part of our brain that engages in justice to talk about standards-based education. And so we can marry those together, and then we can have a conversation about why one feeds the other and the other can't live without the other. And so that was just big for me that people could do it, were serious about it, and my practice can be improved not just in developing my perspective <clears throat> on equity, but it could also be improved in developing my moves, my teacher moves. So that's really, really cool for me. And um, I've really, I've enjoyed it. My life's work has been around equity, specifically black boys and getting them to read well. When I came to Institute for the first time last year, it just got, got I don't know, turned up. Like it was like, okay, now let's really get serious about the work. And so I'm just glad to be here and doing that. That's great. And at Unbounded, we are grounded in the intersection of right. both the standards, right. content, aligned curriculum, and equitable instructional practices, because yes. we know that is essential to closing that opportunity gap. Right. So what are some of the challenges with regards to fostering equity and implementing rigorous aligned curriculum? So I'll give you a story. I'm a coach of English language arts, as you stated, and I was talking with one of the teachers that I was supporting and I got very, I guess, harsh, right, with asking him, does he know his content to the degree that he can help students mm -hmm. in a deep and meaningful way? And by challenging him on content and, and on passion, it was, it was a mistake of mine to go that far with him. But therein lies the difficulty of this work. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, you have the urgency of what you see as a coach or as a school leader. And on the other hand, you have the readiness of the staff. And those two things are constantly in tension with one another. And you have to decide when to push and when to pull, when to do all of the moves that can develop agency on their part. Because I don't have all the answers. You know, I have some expertise as a result of going through this Standards Institute and my own experience. But I don't know what's behind every door. But I do know some of the steps that lead to the hallway to the door. And I have to be able to package it in such a way that they want to take that journey with me. And so that's constantly the push-pull and the tug of leadership. How do I get things done through other people? More importantly, how do I work with other people so that we're doing the same work? Mm -hmm. And so that is, I think, the challenge in implementing the learning from Institute is how do I get people that aren't necessarily ready for the change to make that change. Yes. And can you tell us a little bit more about equitable instruction and why it's so important and what is at risk? Yeah. 
I think equitable instruction, I always think about uh, The End of Average is a book uh, by, I think, Todd Rose. And he talked about equity being a function of fit. He says, when you can fit people with their instruction, that's equity, right? Many different pathways. But then there's another component to it that he doesn't address that this institute does address, which is stretch. So if I can fit my educational approach to someone while stretching them to where they need to go, that to me is equitable instruction. Where are you, but where do you need to be? And instruction lies in that gap. And equitable instruction is something that does not foreclose the opportunity to learn to all of the students that are in front of you, specifically black and brown kids. So equitable instruction are for the traditionally underserved, but they're also for those that have been served but could be better served with the diversity. Uh, so that's a really key point. And I think what's at risk is, I think it's life and death. You know, I, I think about that, right? So let's let's put that on one side. But on the way to that either terminal or eternal type perspective, there's the everyday quality of life that gets leveled and decreased because people are suffering from non-equitable instruction. I'll give you an example. I have some good friends that they read well and they, they write like very dense texts and things like that. And just the exchanges that we can have and the conversations that we can engage in are just, they're so rich and so fulfilling that I know that if we didn't receive that type of instruction, it would have really narrowed our type of experiences together. And so I look at when I read a book and how I can notice all the different colors in a book that the words paint. Like, that's a quality of life issue. And I think that's the outgrowth of equitable instruction is an improved quality of life. Like, before we get to the end, you know, life or death, what's the journey look like? And I think the journey is narrow, it's technicolor, um, it's monochromatic if there isn't equitable instruction that increases the capacity and agency for kids to understand complex things in a complex world. And so that, I think, is the risk. If we don't engage in this instruction on a daily basis, on a yearly basis, on a monthly basis, weekly basis, every single minute that passes is a decreased quality of life factor on behalf of kids. Because kids don't have two or three times to get it right. They have the one time they're in front of you, the, whatever the year is. I put in one of my meetings recently, I put the number 8,000 on the board. And I just asked them what that related to. And they didn't know. And I said, basically, that's the amount of hours you have from now to the end of the school year with these kids to get them to grade level, to get them to be able to do all these independent things. And I say, and tomorrow, another hour of that is gone. So at the end of someone spending 8,000 hours with you, are they getting better? If the answer is no, then we have to really look at what we're doing. Wow, that's powerful. Along my journey, I've met with a couple of teachers, and I hear the same thing over and over again. My students aren't able to do this. It's too hard for them. So how do you coach teachers who have these expectations? How do you help them or coach them to see the potential in their students and make things like complex text accessible? I think many arguments are occurring at the wrong place. So the argument isn't about ability, because at some point, everybody didn't know to do what they do now. Uh, 
I think the conversation has to be shifted around what is necessary and then what is possible, right? So what is necessary to put the conditions that are important around a kid so that they can learn every day? Like, what's necessary? Let's think about the standards. Let's think about the grade level standards and also the skills. What is necessary for me to do as a teacher to prepare in the right way? Like, what is necessary first? Once we fit what's necessary in the box, then we can talk about what's possible beyond that. And when you think about necessary then possible, you think about necessary being a function of where is the kid now and where do they need to be? And so I think when you're coaching someone, I don't think you want to accept the premise or get into a situation where are kids able or are they not? It's really not about ability. It's more about process, environment, and time, right? So if the right processes are in, are the right learning processes are in place, if the environment is conducive to making errors and getting corrections on the spot or in the getting feedback consistently that can improve their practice, enough reps of that over time will increase their ability. And so I think we need to stop thinking about ability and we need to think about process, environment, and time. Even more than that, we should be engaging in whether or not they even want to try. And so I had a good friend who said, it's not about ability, it's about attitude and motivation. And so I think if we understand that our role is to be so passionate about our content, so passionate about kids' future, that they have no choice but to listen and do because they're so into what we're talking about, then I think we'll cover ability on the way, right? So I think it's really important to think about motivation, but also that PET, right? Um, what's the processes? What's the environment and what's the time quotient? And I think that's a way in which I help change the premise of the conversation into something that I think teachers can then do. So for teachers and leaders that are looking to learn about how to reach these higher standards, what advice would you give them? How should they spend their time? I think first, let's understand the context that our kids are in. Every story about standards starts with students. So what is the story of your students? Where do they come from? What is it that they encounter on a daily basis? What are their struggles? What culture do they hold themselves allegiance to? What cultures? I think you start there. Then you go into your standards and, and think, you have to become knowledgeable about the standards. Like, do you know what standard-based instruction looks like? Not what it sounds like, not what it could be, but what does it actually look like? What are the processes that are happening repeatedly in a standards-based classroom? Then, wherever the gap is with the teachers between student stories and standard-based instruction, that's where you direct a lot of your training to. And so I think, again, it starts with knowledge, and then it continues with observation and gets better through training. Okay. So how have these teaching practices helped move the teachers at your school? It's caused them to be more reflective about what they put in front of kids. One of the things that we, that we really preach at my school is kids should be starting in text, persisting through text, and then writing from text. And so that means that the do now, which is a warm-up, is text-based. It's not, what did you do over the summer? How was your weekend? Right? It's, what is your reaction to the text that you just read? What decisions can you make? What um, inferences can you draw from this text? Then, 
What is this text doing? Like, what's the craft? What's the structure in the text? And then finally, what can you pull out of the text to support original opinions? And so I think that has moved them to really invest in text being the basis for the conversation. When before, a lot of my teachers would focus the conversation on what kids think, what their opinions are, divorced from text. I think the next evolution of our work together is to continue to challenge them with texts that are rigorous, the kids, and also to support this, what I call an assessment loop, which is here's your evidence of what you know with this standard. Now here's feedback for where you need to be, where the gaps are, and then here's a chance to reapply that practice. Not easy happening in a class of 25, 30 kids, but that assessment loop is critical because if a kid never gets feedback and then gets a chance to revise and practice that feedback, how can they ever develop the skills to get better? Before we close out, are there any final thoughts or words for our listeners? I don't know how you are listening to this podcast, whether it's you're on a treadmill or jogging or playing ball or in the car, but I want you to fast forward 50 years from this moment. We don't know what the technology is going to be. We don't know what the world is going to look like. But do we really want to continue to have this conversation that you're hearing now? Do we really want to continue to grapple with this idea that we're creating a permanent underclass through underservice with education? What a commentary on our courage and our commitment to children. If everything else changes, but the outcomes. And so I'd like to challenge you wherever you're listening to commit yourself to the work from wherever you are. Uh, Wherever you are, you can always help a child. You can always sponsor a child. You can volunteer your time, your energy in a school. Do something so that when we're gone and you're no longer listening to me or me to you, that different conversations are happening. It's not about helping a child get better anymore that's black and brown, but how can black and brown kids create their own schools? We have to change the trajectory of our conversation. And in that change, it's a commentary about what we really believe about children. Thank you. Thank you again, Josh. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and I can't wait to see you again at the next Standards Institute. Likewise. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Until next time.